Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Let me begin, begin with a question this morning. What makes you tick? Why do you do the things that you do? Whether they're good things or eh, questionable things. What is behind uh, the reason that you do whatever you do? You may be one who likes a challenge. One of those people who declares that you like when people doubt you and tell you that you can't do something and you're just motivated by that and so you're driven to prove people wrong. Maybe you are one who was born into great expectations, somebody who was born with all the advantages and none of the excuses, encouragement and support, although sometimes it can feel like pressure, and you do what you need to do so that you don't let people down. Maybe you are a walking Nike commercial, and you say, I don't know why I do what I do. I just do it. It's, you know, what, what difference does it make why? I do whatever it needs to be done. Whatever your answers may be, there is a reason behind why we do what we do. Our answers may be different, but there is a motivation in each of our lives that compels us to act toward whatever we do or refrain from whatever we don't want to do. Now, we have been studying the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' manifesto of the kingdom, where he expresses to us what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God, distinct from the world, nevertheless living in the world, but how we are shaped by the values of heaven and by God's very word Jesus preached to his people. And so far we've seen some very broad pictures of things, Jesus beginning with the, the whole issue of of our mindset in the, in the Beatitudes, showing and shaping the way that we think and the things that we are to value. Uh, Jesus speaks them in, in this series of bullet points and telling us that with each one, uh, a mindset that is godliness, there, there comes blessing. And Jesus also tells us that those who belong to him, those who are cultivated, growing in godliness, there is an expectation and a promise that we're going to have an influence in our communities and together ultimately in the entire world. Because he says, you are the salt of the earth, and so there is a preserving aspect that we are called to and promise that we are going to have. You are the light of the world. So there is a directing and an exposing and, a, and an enlightening aspect of our lives as God is at work in us that Jesus says that not only are we expected to, but promises that we will have. Jesus also then declares that we are to be a people who are righteous. One of the ways that we are going to have the impact is the way that we live our lives. And then he appeals to the mindset of those who are listening and, makes the, uh, to, and points out the highest level that they can think of of people of righteousness, right action, holiness. Now, every culture has their standards of what is right and the way that people are to behave. And Jesus, talking to primarily Jewish listeners, is pointing to God's people the people that are the teachers, the writers, the professionals, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, and saying, look, you see the way that they live and their righteousness. You may not like it. Maybe you do. It may seem obnoxious to you. But everybody in the culture seemed to understand this was the standard of righteousness, a standard that most people couldn't possibly measure up to. And Jesus, pointing, pointing at those people, said, but unless your righteousness is greater than their righteousness, you have no part of the kingdom of heaven which is somewhat of an undoing, which is part of Jesus' point. And then he illustrates what righteousness looks like 
and uses a half dozen different illustrations from life saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and Jesus raises the level of expectation in our lives to an undoable, not only for us, but to, uh, for the Pharisees who were not even trying to reach that level of, of righteousness. And Jesus still saying, this is what's expected of us. And there is a subtle promise as we understand that we cannot do what he declares and we are broken, then while he is at work within us, we end up being able to do what we cannot do on our own. One of the things that's important as we see this, and I hope that you have seen this, is the, the progress of the progression of thought that is taking place here. So the Sermon on the Mount is not just a collection of individual elements that are all strung together as one message. So one week we talk about attitude, one week we talk about influence, one week we talk about righteousness. They're each part actually builds on the previous one, beginning with the foundation of the way we think and our values, and then saying, here's what happens, declaring what our righteousness ought to be. Each part builds on the other parts. And when we understand how each part is building on the previous part, how it's, uh, it's, it's building up from what has already been stated, then we gain a whole new perspective. It's not just the list of do's and things that we're pointed to, but we begin to understand the mindset of God. We begin to understand what he uh, calls us to do and we are shaped by those principles that are being built. And the primary one that we see emphasized at this point is just what it means to be a righteous people. Righteous, more righteous than we think that we can be, more righteous than perhaps we desire to be, but nevertheless, a people who are marked by our actions propelled by our faith. Now, it's also important to note again, and I did this last week, but to just mention again, when we talk about righteousness, people get confused at times because the Bible refers to righteousness in two different ways. There is the act of righteousness, which is what we have in view here, which Jesus has been talking about, which is the things that we do because of the faith that we have. Whatever it is that motivates us, but the things that we do. But biblical Christian righteousness is right faith propelling right action, or right action being propelled by right faith. There's also an aspect of righteousness that the Bible speaks of as passive righteousness. It is the righteousness that is declared yours at the moment that you have trusted in Jesus Christ. That all of the righteousness which is his Christ, which is the fullness of God, is counted as being yours simply by faith. And so all of you who are in Christ, you are righteous. You're declared that. You are holy because it's a declaration of God. It's been credited to you. And yet the whole purpose of Jesus speaking this is that the gap between what we are accredited and what we are would begin to die. We would grow in righteousness and we would die to that gap in this end. And in the passages that we're going to be looking at this morning, we see Jesus continuing the whole theme of righteousness and the issue of righteousness being raised. We're going to see Jesus speaking to us in a way that we begin to look at our righteousness that may not be our natural instinct. And so I'm going to invite you to uh, read with me or to, to join. Listen while I read, beginning Matthew 6, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to skip ahead uh, to uh, verse 16. Because let's go to God's Word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, 
that they may be praised by others? Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now skipping down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as you have granted us this word, we pray that by your Spirit that you would open our minds to give us understanding and that that which you have revealed by your Spirit that we understand in our minds would be a kindling for our hearts. We come to you with the promise that you have made that your word never comes back empty. So use it, Lord, now to not only give us understanding, but to shape our hearts, our lives, and every aspect of our, of our being, that we might live in a way that is pleasing to you and have the joy of fellowship with you. We pray all in Christ Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you notice it or not, but Jesus does something that is, at least to me, seems a little bit surprising in this particular passage. He's got this you know, great flow of teaching, building upon one another and then talking about righteousness and giving us these great illustrations of what it means to live righteous lives. And then he sh sort of changes gears. He's still talking about righteousness, but he offers us a warning in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is not in any way suggesting we shouldn't aspire and move towards and grow in these actions that are righteousness. And he's not in any way minimizing the standard, but he is, while continuing to point us in that direction, he's saying, but then watch out about your own attitude about the things that you do. And the reason that he does that is because our actions themselves can sometimes confuse us. They confuse many people in the church, many Christians, uh, and many people who think they're Christians but are not Christians. Martin Luther once said that our righteousness might be even more dangerous than our sin. And the reason that he said that, and what he means by that, is when we are in sin, when we're practicing sin, most of us have a pretty good idea when we are doing something wrong. And even if we are kind of thick-headed and not aware of when we are doing wrong, most of us have people in our lives who will be very happy to tell us what you're doing is wrong. Now, they may not be right, but at least we have people that are speaking to us. If our own conscience are not pricking us, other people will bring issues that will cause us to say, well, maybe they're right, or no, no, I think I'm okay. But we, we have people, we are, we are fairly well aware when we are doing wrong. But when we are practicing our righteousness, when we are doing right things, for whatever the motives, it is not as easy to be able to determine that we are in the wrong. We can be doing the right things, and if somebody questions us, we appoint to, all, appoint to all the things that we've done, all the things that we are doing, and then challenge them to show us, and so how can I be wrong? 
look at all that I'm doing. And sometimes we use it as a trump card. And who are you? Because you're not doing as much as I'm doing. And we become insulated, even inoculated, from the reality of our spiritual condition because we continually point to all the right things, all the good things, all the noble things that we are doing. And Luther, recognizing that that was a condition of man, and particularly of his own heart, would say, my good deeds are actually more dangerous to my spiritual life than my sin because I'm quick to repent of my sin, but I tend to boast and rest and trust in my right actions. What Jesus is doing here, without minimizing the command that we are to engage in good and noble and righteous activities, he's causing us, forcing us, to look at our own hearts. He wants us to be aware of not only what we are supposed to do, he wants us to be aware of why we do all of the things that we do. He wants us to be aware of what makes us tick. Because in Christianity, in the kingdom of God, righteousness is not only a matter of our behaviors. It is a matter of our actions as well as the secret motivations of the heart. That's what Jesus is saying here, and that's his intention in pointing it out with his warning that he begins with in this section of his Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to explore the illustrations that Jesus gives and the principles that he has and and really some struggles that we may have to grasp and to appreciate what he's saying. Now, for those of you who like outlines, particularly uh, those which are easy to find, there's three key words that I, I want you to note down or at least keep in mind. First, we're going to look at the problem, then we're going to look at a promise, and then we're going to look at a paradox that all three of which uh, face every one of us. All of us us are experiencing all of those things. The first thing we need to look at is the problem of religiosity or the problem of religious righteousness that Jesus is confronting head on. In this passage, he mentions three things that are both expected and assumed. Three good things, three common things that are practiced by believers and really people of religion, of all types of religions. He talks about the giving to the poor, or alms. He talks about prayer. He talks about fasting, three practices. And when I say that these are all expected and assumed, we know that by the context, by by what he is saying. He says, when you pray, when you give to the poor, when you fast, the word when shows us that he's assuming that we do it Because otherwise, he would be saying, now, if you do this, but when he says when, there's this assumption that these are practices that those who are his followers, just like people of other religions, they are engaged in. The fact that he says when you do this is not only an assumption, but there's an expectation. He's not suggesting these as items that you can download, like you can download for your phone, different apps. Well, I think I want the fasting app. These are expectations. These are one of, some of many of the different things that are part of the life in the kingdom of God. Jesus is describing each of these uh, here in detail in the practice. Each of these things, not only are they part of the life, but they're given, they're gifts, they're opportunities. They all help us to grow in our spiritual life. And when they are brought, particularly in a Christian context, they enable us to grow in God's grace. 
But Jesus is using these three things to illustrate a point, although the points that he is making is not limited to these three practices in any way. He's bringing these things to light because we all recognize a problem that is sometimes associated with them. Jesus speaking, the re- our first hearers certainly recognized it because when Jesus was talking about the practices of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, he talked about each of these specifically. He's talking about when you give, do it, in, do it not in order to gain attention. In other words, in that culture, what had happened, the Pharisees had made a giving to people in need a show. They saw somebody who was in need and they decided they were going to help, but they were never going to miss a PR moment. So before they handed something over, handed the check, they would essentially call a press conference or as many people as they could possibly get and say, watch me help this poor, miserable individual. And so they hand them the check and then stand for the photo op or whatever it was in order that people would know that they were committed to helping the poor. The poor were merely a prop for them in order to get good publicity and for people to think well of them. In fact, some of them actually, as a religious ritual, they would ring a bell to get your attention because you might be looking at something else. And so before they would do that, they would ring and then they would go through the ritual of, of giving to people in need. When Jesus describes the practice of the prayer, he talks about people who stand on street corners and in the synagogues, and they just love the attention. And in street corners, people in that culture, not unlike you see in the Middle East today, that there would be a horn that would be blown and people would be summoned to prayer several times during the day. But many of the religious leaders, knowing that these days were coming and they were going to commit themselves to prayer as every committed person, ordinary or esteemed, they would start thinking strategically, now where can I go so that people will see that I am committed to praying? And so they would go find the busiest street corners so that when that horn blew, they would push themselves there and then they would stand there and they would pray as loud as they can. If we were going to do that in our day, it would be somebody would probably go onto, down to, onto Dog Street and, uh, while people were visiting and stand there and just pray out loud, very loud, or stand on the corner at the point between the campus and Merchant Square where cars are coming and some of them have to stop and they would hear you praying. So they would see you. You'd be very, very visible. And they, they, this is the way that they would exercise their prayers. They are on display. Now, we understand that in, other, in our own culture, too, because while it's, people may not go on the street corner, many of us who make a practice of praying before our meals would go to restaurants, we make a show of it, partly because we think that we're living for witness. We, it's not enough that we pray and give thanks to God. We want people to see that we're praying and giving thanks to God because that way they'll know that we're Christians, right? Jesus is talking about the mindset, not about the practice of prayer, but the idea that our motive is to be seen by others. And then he talks about the whole issue of the fasting. The people that were fasting in this day, they would just kind of look like they were just worn out, exhausted, famished, you know, kind of hunched over and pain on their face. And somebody might ask, what's wrong? You don't look well today. Yeah, I'm, I'm fasting for the glory of God. Wow, you must have been doing this, what, three, four days now? Well, no, I skipped lunch. But, you know, it's going to be... They made a show of everything that they were doing. And it's this practice that Jesus is calling to attention. Because what they were doing is they were using things that were intended to bring benefit in our relationship with God and... Bring, help us to grow in our, in our connection with God. 
and they were using them as a commodity which they exchanged in order to build an image and a reputation for themselves. They used the practices to look good. Now, I need to be very clear. Jesus is not saying that here that everything needs to be done and nobody can know about it. Some of you had the experience and you have ministered to people who are in need and you go and you give something to somebody and then they go and tell somebody. Well, that doesn't rob you of the joy of hope. You're not somehow God's keeping score and saying, oh, oh, that was impressive. Oh, they, somebody knows? Okay, that doesn't count. I'm not, I, I'm not pleased with you because somebody now knows. They're not saying there's anything wrong with public prayer. Jesus prayed publicly. As part of the worship in Old Testament and New Testament, there were people who would lead in prayer. Jesus' followers gathered together in prayer, in prayer meetings, sometimes with hundreds of people. I mean, that would seem to be very public. That would be like a Quaker meeting. Otherwise, okay, we're gathering to prayer, but anybody that says anything, you're just pretentious. Jesus is not talking about that. The issue is not just the public part of it, but the issue is the motive of our hearts. Jesus is very concerned about that, and he points it out because it is something that all of us are prone to do. For most of us, maybe for all of us, even our best things are mixed motives. Jesus points out to us that we need to be aware of our hearts. The word that he uses over and over again here is hypocrite. Now, in some senses, we might think that seems to be an inappropriate word to be using here, particularly for those who actually do what they are presenting to do. I mean, if they go through the motions and they do give to the poor and they do offer prayers, sound, theological, rich, articulate prayers, or they do actually fast, how would that be uh, hypocritical? Because we tend to think of a hypocrite as somebody who says one thing and does something else. Or if we're a little bit more narrow, we might think of the definition that says, well, they think one thing and they do something else. Those are the contemporary definitions of hypocrite, and they, and they are certainly appropriate. We understand what somebody means by that. And somebody who says one thing and does something else probably is open to being labeled a hypocrite. But when Jesus is using the word hypocrite here, he doesn't use it in the same context that we do. In the ancient context, the word hypocrite wasn't even necessarily a slam, although he's using it in a way that's concerning here. The word hypocrite was associated with the theater. Whenever an actor or actress was going to play a particular role, it was common in the Middle East, common in that day, that whenever they were playing the part, they would put on a mask. And then when they would play another role, they would take the mask off and they would speak and they would have another mask. This is the way the drama was done. And so actors and actresses, as they were doing plays for people, they were putting on the masks for the role that they wanted you to see, they wanted you to understand and, and engage with. And so in that sense, it was a perfectly acceptable thing. It's not a slam, but it was a word that was associated with putting on a performance. But what Jesus is helping us to understand here by applying it to those who do their religious righteousness before other people, he's saying, when that's your motive, you're playing a role. You're putting on a face for the purpose of other people seeing you. And you need to be very well aware of your own heart as to whether or not you're simply wearing a mask or whether you are actually engaging with God when you are doing these kinds of things. It's a problem if we are not aware of our hearts, if we do not know what makes us tick, and if we do what we do, not for God, but simply for 
the approval, the respect, the esteem, the rewards that come from man. Second, we need to also see what Jesus says about reward, because there is a promised reward that he speaks about in these passages, every one of them. In every one of these uh, scenarios, all three of them, he speaks of two kinds of rewards. There is a reward that comes from people, and there is a reward that comes from God. Verse 1, as he summarizes it, he says, um, in order, you know, if you do, what you're, do your righteousness in order to be seen by men, then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then in each of the giving, the praying, he says that if you do these things for them, then you receive your reward from people, but you will not receive your reward from God. But if you do things in secret, then you receive your reward from God. And so Jesus is being very clear here that there is a reward, there's a promise of a reward, and the reward comes from someplace. The word that he's using here for reward, particularly as it relates to receiving the reward from people, is kind of a technical term in Greek that just means that you've been paid in full, you've offered your receipt, and you get no more. The deal has already been done. Everything that's coming to you has, been, has come to you. And so you received everything by the approval that you received from the people that you were trying to please in the first place. I was thinking about some contemporary situations where we might understand that mindset. There was a noted uh, author, actually a Christian author, uh, about a year ago who wrote a book and then his organization made sure that uh, they paid enough, purchased enough books that he would get on the New York Times bestseller list. And, when that and apparently that's uh, not an uncommon practice. It's certainly not an illegal practice. And there was some debate as to whether it was an ethical practice. But at least in the church circles, people realizing he was paying to get on the New York Times, well, then he'd already received his reward. His reward was he got on the New York Times bestsellers list, but his book then tanked and nobody wanted it, and he's now not even actively in ministry. Because people just said... I don't want any part of that. I, and, and there's a sense in which God is saying the same thing here, that when we do what we do so that we gain the approval of other people, that we make an impression, that our purpose, our motive, we are driven by what other people think of us. And we do good things so that people will think well of us. God doesn't say that it's not good. He says you've already been paid in full. You got exactly what you bargained for. You got everything you wanted. You did a good deed. Now people are impressed by what you've done. But... You're paid in full, there is no more that is coming. On the other hand, God says that, that which is done in secret, God gives reward as well. Now, some of us also have a problem with the whole idea of reward at all. I mean, the idea that we do anything for reward, whether it's from people or whether it comes from God, it just sounds so mercenary. It makes people uncomfortable. Because it doesn't feel like there's any sacrifice. I'm not sacrificing anything for God. I mean, if everything I do, then God's going to reward me then how do I give God? How do I give to God? And it should remind us of one important principle is we never outgive God. God is far more gracious. He gives to us everything that we have. God is not in need of anything we choose to give to him anyway. And it's not that he doesn't receive what we offer to him, but he has no need. He's not impressed by the fact that we want to sacrifice. In fact, he says he's not looking for sacrifices, but broken and contrite hearts, hearts that are seeking after God, hearts that just want to be with God. That's what brings God the delight. but still we're uncomfortable with the whole idea of experiencing reward or receiving reward. But we need to also kind of consider things here. 
The problem is not really that we receive reward. The problem, if that was a, if, well, if that was a bad thing, then it really seems inappropriate for God to be promising it, doesn't it? It's kind of like putting a carrot out for the horse to try to drive you to something, and, but, that, but it would be wrong. God is dangling promise of reward, and then, our, then if it was wrong to want something, then it would be inappropriate for him to lay that out before us. Here he's saying the issue is not desire for reward. That's not a problem. The question is where do you want to experience it? The problem is not the desire for reward, but the problem is that we sell out so cheaply in order to get a reward. We feel good about ourselves if other people feel good about us. If people think well of us, then we think that we have arrived and that's all that we shoot for. And we're not even worried about what might be coming from God. But God says that if your focus is receiving a reward from people, that's all you get. He doesn't say that it's you know, unpleasant. Many of us can probably live very comfortably that way. He says that's all you get. That may be more than we have. But it is cheap when compared to what God is promising because the promise of God involves something more. It involves the presence of God. It involves the pleasure of God in you where you will hear, good, well done, my child. It is the joy of seeing the benefit that other people receive from your life when you are giving yourself away and expecting nothing in return. And the irony is of the blessing, the reward that comes from God, is so often when we bless other people, we actually get in that package people thinking well of us as well. But we sell out so cheaply because we only want the esteem from other people. We do what we do. We do good things so that other people will think highly of us. That's the entire reward. Or we can be doing things in the presence of God, finding joy, and still, at times, gaining the approval of other people. Why would we sell out so cheaply? But finally, there's a paradox. For some of us, this is a difficult passage. And there's a paradox that needs to be resolved. The reason that it seems difficult is it almost seems to be in contradiction with something that Jesus said earlier, doesn't it? I mean, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may praise your fathers. Let, do your good deeds so that people might praise your Father in heaven. And now Jesus is saying, yeah, if you're doing things so that People see it, that's, that's not a good thing. First thing we need to understand is it's really not a problem, even if it creates attention, when we understand that Jesus is dealing with two different ways, two different tendencies that we have, two different sin, sinful tendencies that can be true of any of us at any time. On the one hand, we have this tendency towards you know, human cowardice tendency to withdraw and separate ourselves from the world, particularly if we live in an environment where we are not esteemed for our faith and the world doesn't share our values. We know we have to live in it to some extent. I mean, so far as I know, nowhere in our community do we have Christian grocery stores, 
kosher is not a required nor is it a possible thing for us to have fully in this community. Most of us have to work someplace. It would be pretty much impossible for us to live our lives totally in a Christian secluded community. And so what Christians tend to do is, well, they put up with the world and live in the world as much as they have to, but then they try to hide themselves within Christian community, doing nothing but Christian. I don't think it's as prominent as it was now, but during the 80s and the, during the 90s, we created all sorts of Christian everything. What we did is we saw what was popular in the world, and then we did it ourselves. Christian bowling night, Christian skate night, Christian whatever. A Christian bowling night always confused me, as if there was something more impressive about a Christian getting a, a 7-10 split than a non-Christian getting one. I mean, one is sanctified, one's not. I don't get it. The same game, same thing, same place, what was it? But we were just trying to hide from the world. And some traditions try to tell us that that's the whole thing. The only way you can stay clean is if you stay away from the world. And yet Jesus says, you know, we can't, we're not pulling you out of the world. You are to be light. You're to be salt, which means you need to be engaged with the world. But as Christians, we have this fear of either being rejected or of being hurt, or even worse, a disdain for people who are not like us and we don't consider them to have measured up to our standards. And so we withdraw in holy cowardice. And Jesus is confronting that and saying, no, I expect you to make an influence and you're to be engaged in the communities where I placed you. And together you're going to be engaging the entire world and making a difference as the gospel is proclaimed and changes hearts and lives. Jesus at that point is addressing our tendency to want to withdraw. But in this case, he's addressing our pride and our vanity and our sense of self-righteousness. And so he tells us to be careful not to do our deeds to be seen by people. We're not trying to hide what we do. We are trying to, Jesus is cautioning us not to be driven by people's opinions. And he's reminding us that the issue is in our hearts, our motives. And at the same time, he's reminding us of the deceitfulness of our heart as the scripture testifies. That we cannot trust our feelings and our senses, but we need an objective reality, which is what Jesus is declaring to us through this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is reminding us in this particular passage is that the why we do what we do is, very, is, is as important as the what we do. The why and the what are both important in the kingdom of God. It's an issue of the heart that we must be aware of. And we know that because of what Jesus also doesn't say. Compare what he doesn't say and what he doesn't say. In verse 1, when he's given overarching warning that these three illustrations feed. He does not say that we shouldn't do these things. You know, some hypocrites do these things, so you know, avoid giving to the poor and avoid praying and avoid fasting because that's just going to puff you up and make you prideful, so just don't do those things. That's not what he says. He says when you do them, it's assumed, it's expected, he's addressing the issue. The other things he doesn't say here is don't do these things in public. He never says that about any of these things. What Jesus says here is, don't do these things to be seen by men. And the paradox is resolved when we recognize that he's addressing the condition of our heart, which may fall one way or the other, and he's guiding us very specifically, and he's telling us that we need to be very well aware of what makes us tick. That doing good things, while still noble and still benefit, is not the sole aim but we need to be aware of why. And in that sense, Jesus really reminds us that some of the people that we consider to be the greatest saints may actually prove to be nothing. 
if in the end that they are doing what they do so that you will admire them and vote them as among the greatest saints in your top five list. I'm going to wrap up with this. Because this could be really in one sense a very frustrating and discouraging passage. Discouraging message. As reminded of what the 19th century Russian poet Ivan Turgenev once wrote. Turgenev said that I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I know the heart of a good man, and it's terrible. And the reason that comes to mind is it'd be very easy to take seriously the Sermon on the Mount, these things that we're supposed to do that we can't do, and even all right, now we might think that we can start doing them and then we're told, well, and they, we might be wrong anyway to then take that and, and, and some sentiment like that and say, okay, even a good person is just terrible. And that statement just kind of settling in our mind. But what we need to understand is the heart of God through Jesus and what he's doing even as he's undoing us. The philosopher Blaise Pascal reminded us that man is great so far as he is wretched. What he means is we have the possibility of greatness only when we come to the end of ourselves and we can be made something else. I mean, that's the whole point of boot camp for those of you done in the military, isn't it? They break you so they can make you something better than you ever thought you could be and probably a good point of the time we even want to be. That's the point in most athletic competitions is that the coaches that are the best are able to break you and make you more than you wanted to be, more than you thought that you could be. That's the point of parenting is that you, your children are broken of their own natural tendencies and they grow in a way that they wouldn't go otherwise without your coaching, correction that breaks, and then the restoration. And Jesus is doing the very same thing here in the Sermon on the Mount, and I would say even particularly in this, in this passage, because it's when we see our wretchedness, when we see that we are not measuring up, when we are broken is when we are prepared for greatness. And the Sermon on the Mount undoes us from our own righteousness and then empowers us for God's righteousness to be at work within us. It's important for us to understand. The reason is because many people are prone or many people try to live their lives and try to make a name for themselves. Many people, many Christians live to make a name for their church or people live to make a, a name for whatever their causes may be and, and for good causes. And it's an understandable thing. But I want us to be a people that lives to make a name for Jesus. Because we understand and we recognize that the kingdom of God will be here far longer than we will. And that we recognize that earthly legends that we cultivate through our good deeds that people are aware of, they last only for a short time. Earthly legends last only until a better legend comes along. And then people forget what they knew before and then they follow or tell the tale of this particular legend. But the legacy of those who lived their lives to the glory of God, their impact, their legacy lives eternally. The challenge for us is to be a people not afraid to look at ourselves and our motives, realizing that we're going to find them mixed. But that drives us back to the cross where we repent even of our own righteousness, trusting and reminded of what God has done for us in Jesus that is 
forgiven us of our self-righteousness as well as our sin. Reminds us that we have all the righteousness in Christ and that he has promised to be at work within us that we would grow. God, by calling attention to righteousness in the kingdom, which is both internal and external, motives and actions, is making you more like Christ, a greatness that lasts forever. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would, as the psalmist has asked, you would open our eyes to see our own hearts, even our best motives, that even our best actions that cloud our motives, even our best motives that may be clouded with selfishness. Father, may you expose them to us that we may bring them to you. For in you, Lord, we find not only forgiveness, but the joy of your power and a freedom from the need of the opinion of others. Bless us by turning our eyes to look to you and to you alone, we pray in Christ.